This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to My Life in Books, Authors Talking Books, presented by blind writer and broadcaster Red Sale from his home in London, England. Selena Mills is a journalist and disability activist. In her new book, Life Unseen, A Story of Blindness, she uses her own experience of losing her sight to explore the history of blindness. From the myths of ancient Greece to the apps of Silicon Valley, her quest reveals the stories and achievements of blind people, as well as those of their sighted peers who sought to demonize, patronize, and cure them. But as she sets out to show that blindness has always been an active force in Western society, she also questions why we as blind people have always been treated differently. Selena narrates the audiobook version of Life Unseen herself, and this clip is by kind permission of her audiobook producers, W.F. Howes Limited. Most people in the sighted world think that what they've just experienced that velvet, pinky darkness behind our lids, is blindness. Merely closing our eyes will give us a moment of awareness into what it's like not to be able to use our eyes at all. Blindness, we tell our sighted selves, is a state of darkness, blackness, obscurity, or at least murky fogginess. Indeed, any mention of the word blind or blindness comes with an elusive coat of mystery, intrigue and ultimately fear. Either blindness is perceived as debilitating, blind people with their arms stretched out, groping in the dark, or passive and miserable souls who must be grateful for what morsels the sighted world gives them. Even in our far less damning and supposedly more liberal times, when there's a clear legal definition of blindness... Legally, blindness is defined as less than 2200 vision in the better eye with glasses. And we live in a world where we have white canes, high-speed technology, and even well-trained guide dogs, not to mention vast strides in medical care. We still think of blindness as tragic, frightening, or a clinical condition to be diagnosed and fixed, and ultimately triumphed over. It's curious, isn't it? Selena Mills, welcome to My Life in Books. Thank you for having me. Life Unseen is built round the story of your own sight loss. So let's start there. You write that your eyesight has always been precarious, but it's got worse through your life. Basically, I was born blind in my right eye, so I already hadn't got the use of that one. And my left eye was okay-ish, and my upbringing was very much in the sighted world. And then in my late 20s, early 30s, I started getting a bit more blurry and then um, basically found uh, there's a growth at the back of my eye, which is incredibly difficult to remove because of where it is. And it's just quietly growing. And the advice was from all the doctors around the world, specialists, don't touch it because it's right at the back of your eye and it's more than likely to cause more damage if we go in there than not. And so I'm sort of living with a Damocles sword in the sense of I don't really realise how much I can't see until I think back. So three years ago, I could see bus numbers or signposts and now I can't or I could read that, I could read this or I could see definition and now I can't. So for me, it's been a gradual, um, I would call it sort of like incremental bits of sand growing. And in a sense, I think I was in denial for a long, long time because I, I could see. And so I was like, oh, well, I'm fine. It can't just a, bit, just a bit rough around the edges. And now I think there was a point in my 40s where I realized I really had to take it quite seriously and deal with myself and, and how the mm. world viewed me and how others viewed me. And I think ultimately how I viewed myself because I didn't want to claim the word blind. I didn't want to use it. And then about five years ago, my ophthalmologist said, well, you really are legally blind. And I was like, oh, <laughs> you know, I hadn't sort of clocked it really, but I am and um, I can still see something, but it's definitely significantly impacted my life. And it was coming to terms with defining yourself 
as a blind person and exactly what that word blind means and what the cultural associations in the West are with it, that got you thinking about the subject matter of this book. But it was hearing about a blind Neanderthal, which was the genesis for you writing the book. Yes. I mean, I think I've I've always been sort of curious and um, I'm always interested in how blind people are represented in the press, for example. But I hadn't really sort of gone down the history route. And then I was at an alumni dinner and, you know, there were these very sort of, I would say, quite old-fashioned views on blindness. And then this archaeologist who's still alive and she said, oh, you know, you know, the Tigris River, they found all these skeletons. And right by the river, there was a cave. And the only skeleton they found by in the cave, on the edge of the cave, was this 45,000-year-old skeleton. And when they did the DNA test between the skeleton in the cave and the skeletons just sort of floating around just by the river, it was very odd because the ones by the river died when they were about 28. And the ones, the one, Nandi, they, called, they nicknamed him Nandi the Neanderthal, very original, was 45 and they're like well how come he lived to be 45 so then they did dna they did you know lots of testing carbon dating and they found out that he had a disease that was in his eye sockets and it was pretty clear that he was blind he also had a withered leg so he was disabled and yet the man lives until he's 45 and so everyone got really excited that oh this is so interesting and then the, the archaeologist who was talking about it said Oh, well, um, yeah, obviously someone cared for Nandi. And I think that was the trigger, which is like, why would you assume it was just because people are kind? Maybe maybe he was funny. Maybe he was quite entertaining, you know. And Or he had a berry bush. Or because he wasn't out hunting, he wasn't getting eaten or killed. Mm. So I sort of found it interesting that we, we kind of projected our fantasies of how caring and lovely we are as a community <laughs> onto this Neanderthal. So that's that's really kind of how I got the history aspect of it. But at the same time, I sounds odd, I was cheered by the fact he existed because we don't know much about blind people in history except the exceptional people, you know, the wonderful people or maybe the punished people. But mostly it's very extreme polarised views of blindness in history. And actually there's Nandi sitting by the Tigris River or Tigris, maybe I'm saying it wrong, Tigris River in Iraq. This brings you on to look at the earliest written records that we have in the West, many of which come from ancient Greece. And they too have this very binary view of blindness, that it is either something that gives you a superpower, like the blind seer Tiresias, who can see things that sighted people can't see because he's been blessed by the gods. No, no, no. He wasn't blessed. He was not blessed. He was punished by the gods mm. because he had been spying on Athena in the bath and he had used his eyes, the gift of sight, immorally, so to speak. So he had it removed. And then his mother comes in and she goes, oh, darling, I can't fix that. But what I can do is give you augury and prophecy a sight of a different kind. Mm. So to be careful that he wasn't given the gift, he was punished. But it's still a compensation. Yes, and, and yes, actually that yes, feeds yes, very yes. much into our 21st century view as well. Uh, very much, yes. Or it's viewed as the next worst thing to death. Oedipus tears his eyes out and various other yes. bad people are blinded as a punishment and and it sets up this binary opposition that that is perpetuated today absolutely and i found a few other ones recently which i didn't get to get in the book but sort of william the conqueror um had put into some amazing law that if you raped a woman you would have your eyes taken out not your testicles because it was your eyes that that desired the other thing I found out recently, which I also didn't get to put in the book, which I really regret, which is that they found images on the pyramids of uh, blind harpists, which I like too. I like the idea of, like, <laughs> find a nice blind musician. Um, <laughs> so that's on there too. So yeah, so number one, yes, we've got this wonderful legacy. It's there. It's all there. The history is there. We just haven't dug it up and looked at it. And then secondly, yes, it's often in polarized versions of it, either inspirational you know, even Homer is said to be blind and that has a sort of talent, you know, oh, yes, he's compensated. He can do all lovely, lovely 
And then at the same time, you've got horrific punishment. And, and it seems to reoccur through each era. So um, one of the things I found from doing the book was that each era or epoch, or if you like to call it, um, imposes its own reading of blindness. It's almost like blindness is neutral and sort of uh, in the middle. And anyone just comes along and projects a load of stuff onto it um, for whatever purpose. So it's you know useful for Jesus because he can have a miracle cure and then it's useful for doctors. They can show their prowess by getting people's sight back. Um, it's useful for, for Victorians. They're philanthropists. So it's it's a very useful thing, blindness. And it's also very much used as a, as a metaphor as well for for good and evil. There's light and dark from the the very first sentence of the Old Testament, and that actually feeds into our Judeo Christian culture. That in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, blind people are seen as not worth saving. The the devil is often depicted as one-eyed or mm -hmm, blind mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because he can't see God's light. And that, throughout medieval literature and entertainments, is very much the way that blind people are treated, as pitiable or beyond the pale. Absolutely. And it's, I mean, I didn't know this before I started researching it. And in some ways it helped me because what it's saying to you is it's actually not anybody's fault that they treat you pityingly, or I call it the charity model. So there's, you know, the sense that we're, it's so awful what's happened to us because it's a deficit. And it's a difficult one because I wouldn't want to pretend, for instance, that being blind is like the easiest thing in the world, but it does stigmatize you. And that is nobody's fault because it comes from, I would I call it the palimpsest. You know, there's so many layers of history that are telling people every day. And it's from our language, from our, our laws, from everything that, you know, sight, good, blindness, bad. And mm. and you've even got, you know, think about the enlightenment, the word enlightenment or and all the newspapers, the spectator, the observer. It's all about visual it's called ocular-centric in the academic world, you know, using your eyes constantly. Everything has to be proved visually. And so it is not surprising that blindness gets a bad press because it's been for centuries put in these polarised places. Yeah, and even blind poets like Milton see their lack of sight as possibly a punishment by God, but he is compensated through the light of his poetry. I, I was very struck by your examination of his poetry on his blindness. Oh, everyone, and I have fights about this all the time because um, my, my sighted poet friends think it's the most beautiful poem. And they go, oh, God, it's so... And he, and, you know, God stands for there. He who waits. And I'm like, I am not waiting. I am quite busy running around and falling over. Thank you very much. And I found it really um, interesting that when you're sighted, you read the poem called On His Blindness, and it's um, the concept is that this terrible thing has happened, but nonetheless, you can still have God with you even when you stand and wait, which implies that people with blind, who are blind just stand and wait. So my sighted friend said, no, 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 it doesn't say that. What it's saying is that God's everywhere and is part of everything which it probably does to some extent, but it is also saying blindness is a deficit. And yet, so again, it's back to the compensation. Ah, oh, Milton, the great poet. Oh, he's compensated somehow. He's got this talent. So he's like Homer. And maybe in order to sell himself, he has to put himself in that position. So there's, there's, a, there's a problem here, which is that you cannot be neutral in, in selling blindness because it's much better to say, oh, yes, I'm specially gifted and I've got special talents mm. than it is to say, well, actually, I'm pretty boring. Yeah, and you also point out that in medieval times there were some pretty unpleasant entertainments involving blind people, which carry on to this day. As you point out, there's an American TV show that's done pretty much the same by blindfolding people. So is it any wonder that blindness carries a stigma that blind people would like to try and protect themselves from? I suppose it depends on what your economic circumstances are, because I think if you're reliant on others to help you, uh, literally to feed yourself and give yourself a roof over your head, I, you maybe don't have that option. 
um, I certainly see through history that people with education and financial, you know, privilege do much better and they can say to people go away. Um, the, the farces from the 13th century Belgium, Flemish, French community, um, there's one called Le Gasson et l'Aveugle. It's about a, a man who, um, go, he comes on stage and he's like, I'm blind, but I, I sing and dance for my living. And a sighted person comes along and basically takes total advantage of him. And the audience participate in that laughter. So they laugh mm. at the blind man. And um, he's left on the stage at the end naked and robbed of all his possessions. Um, and this, this is like your, your mid-afternoon entertainment in the town square. Um, and there's another one as well where they would, another game where Sunday afternoons you have a pig, a really beautiful fat piggy, you put him in a, in a pen and then you give, you know, 20 blind men or um, I think mostly men and say, go find a pig. And, mm. and this was like supposedly hilarious. And so you think, oh, that's medieval times. We wouldn't do that now. Well, you know what? There's this TV show, which is now stock called Ellen. And one of the things she did every month was called Crazy Musical Chairs. And then crazy, they blindfolded a group of people and told them to find the prize of the day, which was either, you know, a car. It was an envelope which had in it, you know, you can get a TV or a car or something or holiday. And they all crawled around on the floor with the audience, sighted audience, roaring with laughter at them. And I watched it. I was like, good God, this is 13th century Bruges, you know, this is not, this is not fun. And I realise it's because it's the pantomime aspect of it. The idea that blind people can't see, so they're falling over and tumbling unexpectedly and bashing each other. And that, that is a a, a sort of medieval, you know, jester, the jester would be, would be entertaining. But it, it is also problematic because like, how on earth do you, in answer to your question is, how do you earn a living if that's how you're perceived? How do you function in the world if that is your if that's your role as the entertainer? And and you and I have both been more sighted and become more blind through our lives. And reading your book, it rang an awful lot of bells with me. I was treated totally and utterly differently when I could get around without a pair of dark glasses and a white cane. And you deal with this in a chapter called Faking It, because actually people ask fewer questions of you and just take you on face value if you're walking along like the rest of the world. But as soon as you hold the white cane or have dark glasses or a guide dog, people treat you differently. And the terrible things that happen when you're not there with your white cane and somebody challenges you because you still in your case, pulled out your disabled person's rail pass. A shocking story. I did find that really hard, actually, and I use that story a lot because no one believes me. And it happens far more than you would ever imagine. Um, what happened to me was I was at a, trying to get off a train from Cambridge and I I was feeling quite breezy and happy. And so I was at a puddle along the, the platform, got to the gate, pulled out my ticket, and the guy said, you know, where's your disabled pass? And I went, pulled it out, and he goes, but you can see, can't you? You can see something. You know, you think you're special, but you're not. And you're totally taking advantage of this. And so at the beginning, I'm always very understanding. I go, oh, yeah, oh, no, no, I completely see that. But actually, yes, they don't give the disabled travel card unless they, you, know, you can prove it. And I really, I've only got like five, you know, five to ten percent. And I'm really polite. And this, this, this fellow went mad. And he was like, you people, you take it, you people. I was like, OK, all right. Othering, um, yeah. Um, yeah, yes. So I said, to, I, I kind of was okay for a bit, but when it went on for so much, and there's a queue behind me of very frustrated commuters, I just, I lost it a little bit. And I was, I was like, well, no swearing, but yes, lots of swearing, but not on, on radio. But um, I just lost it. And then I said, and I pulled out my false eye. And I, just, <laughs> I was like, this is what's faking it's like, you know, and he, I think he was slightly horrified because, you know, they're rather beautiful, but they do look, I mean, it's sort of like the alien, you're like, Bleh. Pull out of the eye, and he just freaked out. And I was like, "Yeah, good, good. You're shocked. I'm shocked at how you behave." And it turns out I thought this was like one, you know, an anecdote, a one-off, and that's what train companies was here. This unexpected incident. But I can tell you, people are treated badly. Blind people are often abused and mocked and not believed 
all the time. And I think it's to do with the word blind, because I think the the, the problem is the word blind, which has been around, um, it's apparently, I looked it up recently, it's a German Dutch, and it's blindier. I love, I want to speak Nordic, blindier. And um, it means, you know, cloudy, confused, foggy, and deficient of light. Mm. So if we've been living with that word for thousands of years, and now we suddenly use it in the modern day where we've got people who have a spectrum of blindness from anything to total blindness to got some light, got some blur, got peripheral, got dots. It gets really difficult to understand what the word blind means. And I think that's where we've got to now in the 21st century, which is we're not there. We don't understand. It used to be that blind was, okay, you can't see anything. But now it's about functionality. Moving on from faking it, the obvious question that we are always asked is why don't you get it fixed Uh, both both (laughs) you and I have been told so many times that well there's a cure out there because I read it in the newspaper this morning and that feeds in again to that whole tradition of well Jesus was able to cure it and then in the enlightenment we had this massive leap forward in medicine and so medicine should now be able to cure it I think it's connected to not just blindness. I think there's a human desire to fix and cure and solve. So I think it's, you know, we're not special. (laughs) (laughs) But I think it was a very easy one to show because you had this. um, So in India, in ancient India, you had people couching. So they would take a, a straw and suck out the cataract and bingo, someone could see. And because they didn't understand what they were, sort of what was really involved and the damage and the infection, that really doesn't get going properly until about 1728, where you have William Chesselton, this bright young thing who's actually known for incising kidney stones, uh, decides to have a go. <laughs> when a young blind man, he's always, he's always had, we think it's cataracts, and he removes it, and then he removes the other one. And miracle of miracles, he, he can see. And what's really interesting about it is that it becomes a point of philosophical debate. So in the coffee houses of the Enlightenment with Samuel Johnson, John Locke, all that lot, having a good old yak, people are asking themselves, ah, if a man be born blind, can he tell the difference between a cube and a globe? And, you know, because he, how would he know the difference other than through touch? So what do you need in order to have this experience of knowledge? It's about um, questions of knowledge and philosophy. Mm, So you have John Locke. It's really interesting. But in... Also, that's interesting is that in all of these documents, they never mention the blind person themselves, whether they wanted to be cured. They don't, you know, they don't say, was it painful? Did you, was it agony? And it turns out Handel um, had a very bad cataract operation that went wrong and probably killed him because he got an infection. So I think there's this sort of, um, there's, a, and it was reported very much in the press because the press, don't forget, in the Enlightenment is beginning to bloom. And, you know, it's reported this was a miracle operation. And so there's a fantasy that, oh, if you only have this miracle operation, it's all good. But I suppose the thing that people can't bear to understand, because it it also makes them frightened, is not everything is fixable. And that's true of not just blindness, any disability. There are things that don't get fixed. And I think that really scares people. I think a lot of people see disability as one step towards their own mortality. And when you turn turn around to your taxi driver and say, well, no, I'm sorry, you, you can't just go to an eye hospital and have a magic wand waved. Have you had it lasered, love? That's what oh, I get. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and it, it's incumbent upon us as blind people to go out and get yes. ourselves fixed. Oh. Oh. And yet you tell the very moving story of a woman who I think is a bit of a hero of yours called Maria Theresia Parody. Yes, to Maria Theresa von Parody. I love her. Um, she's very cool. So she is an 18th century musician, composer and singer. And she's a direct contemporary of Mozart. And have we heard of her? Not really. Have we heard of Mozart? Absolutely. So Mozart loves her and knows her and he even writes a concerto for her. She is... I, so here again, I think I mentioned before, if you have privilege of money and education... Your chances of actually having quite a successful life as a blind person are increased. And she does. She has both. And she's she's got great talent and she's sponsored by the Empress of Vienna. And 
by the time she's in her 20s, she's a very, very successful piano player and musician. And she composes operas and she composes things. Anyway, unfortunately, the only reason we do know about her is because of her medical treatment. And so she was treated by a man called Anton Mesmer, France Anton Mesmer. And he, um, that's where we get the word mesmerized, because he used to wave uh, magnets over people and hope that cured them. Um, and he was very, very kind to her. Everyone else was nasty and put electric waves through her eyes, bandaged her, cut her, put leeches on her. Really bad, nasty treatment. And he meets her and he goes, this girl's in pain just from the treatments of trying to fix blindness because it's so incumbent upon her and her parents to fix her. And he just takes her away to his country house and says, just leaves her alone, basically. Gives her some space and waves a few magnets over her. And... I suspect what really happened is that she didn't get her sight back. He claims he did get it back. I'm not so convinced. But I think he just treated her with dignity and kindness and she probably fell about, sort of slightly in love with him and did whatever he told her. Um, and so they had this sort of show and tell where she went into a room and said, oh, there's a birdcage and there's a flower and stuff and all, you know, she had to learn it. But even if she did, I, I suspect that he just treated her night kindly. So after this Mesmer episode where he gets chucked out of Vienna because it's proved that he didn't cure her, as in, like, she goes back to being blind. He goes off and, and starts other things at other places, but she goes on tour, and she goes all over Europe, massive tour, and does really well, makes lots of money, and actually decides to come back to Vienna and start a school for blind musicians. And every Sunday they made, because they had concerts, they made money, and she dies, she's put in the family mausoleum, and you know, the school went on for a long, long time. It's now being incorporated into somewhere else. But you know, it's interesting, not I presume because she was a woman, that's half the reason we don't know about her. But when she was on tour, there's press about her all over Europe. She's in Parisian newspapers, she's in the Times. It, she's called the Blind Enchantress. And she goes <laughs> and she plays with George the Third. You know, she's phenomenal. And Kat, my sister, um, always says oh she's like madonna she reinvents herself like she's a composer and then she does this you know she does all these different things um and she's an inventor so she gets the court engineer to make her raised mats and she gets long strands of silk and puts knots in them at certain points in order to learn the key changes of a piece of music and the blokes are not doing this you know it's her so I'm, i just love her she's sort of like my my icon and it would be nice to think that actually she was a happier person once she was allowed to come to terms with her own blindness, which obviously would be speculation. But the fact that she came back to Vienna and opened a school for blind children shows that she really recognised the importance of education for blind people to allow them to achieve a sense of independence. Yes. And that's something we will come on to discuss further after the break. Share your views on the books you love with Red. Email feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail by calling 844-122-1111. Welcome back to My Life in Books, where this week I'm in conversation with blind author and broadcaster Selena Mills. Just before the break, we were talking about the importance of education, equipping people to take a full and integrated part in society. It's certainly very much at the core of what Helen Keller saw as our future in the world. And in your chapter, Learning It... You take us back to the first blind school that was founded in France, which has a wonderful anecdote as to why Mr. Ue decided to set it up. I think it's quite a famous one. I don't think I'm the first person to report it, but it's basically uh, this professor, this academic thinker, civil servant, is going through Paris and he walks through um, this very famous place and he sees 
again, it's back to comedy and pantomime of blindness. He sees a blind man conducting a blind orchestra and everyone standing around um, the, you know, the throng laughing at these people. And he goes back to his house. He's like, what on earth is going on? Why are blind people being treated so stupid, you know, badly? And um, so he starts a school and he gets funding for it. So he starts this school and actually the lady we were talking about before the break, Teresa von Parody, she goes and visits him and they share knowledge and they share um, how how do you help blind people be employable, uh, have lives, have met, you know private lives, all that stuff. So he starts this school and it does really, really well. And it's it's really rather important to think that you know the word education just sounds so clinical and you know like oh we must have education but if you think about the intimacy of reading a book and thinking for yourself and understanding the world for yourself not just because you're told and there's a huge debate there was a huge debate in the 19th century on how did blind people get knowledge particularly through raised print so you got we had lots of different kinds of raised prints. So there was Braille, there was Moon, there was James Gall. I mean, there were all these different inventions on on how to read. And it's interesting that Braille wins. Louis Braille invents Braille in 1828. At the school that, that Monsieur Huet set up. Correct, exactly. But what I think is interesting is that um, having the right to learn and to equip yourself with knowledge or skills or training seems to be something that the 19th century in in some context did really really well and they also it also backfired in many respects too because you have workhouses and nasty places like that but it's very interesting and particularly for blind women quite a lot of blind women um got in on the act of of education employment all those things so um anyway back louis braille's very interesting because isn't it interesting that a blind man invents a means of reading for blind people, which sighted people, unless they learn it, don't have access to? And I think it is a kind of an echo of what we have now in the in our activism now, which is nothing about us without us. And so mm. I, I sort of think Louis Braille was a very um, not just what he invented, but how the power it had for blind, but the message it was sending was. You can have your own life and you can be independent and read privately without other people telling you all the time your own life. Yes, it's taking out the middleman um, and it, 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 yeah, designed by one of us for the rest of us. And I was fascinated to hear quite how far back the history of raised or embossed letters goes, all the way back to Roman times. They do, absolutely, yes. And you've, now we've got a raised hieroglyphics. Um, but um, yes, I mean, I guess, again, you've got to have a bit of money to, to ask somebody to go and carve some letters for you. Um, and, you know, we have Didymus of Alexandria, which is like the most famous um, example of that. But in the Renaissance, there was a lot of people trying to create a way of, of reading by touch. And then, you, of course, uh, by the end of the 19th century, um, well, the beginning of the 20th century, you had the beginning of... of recording um and then you have sort of the arrival of audio books and it's interesting that was quite well controlled until sort of the open market got hold of it but it was literally you know there was only a recording of you know Agatha Christie and the Bible. Well I know that you're familiar with Matthew Rubery's work as well on on the history of the talking book and and there was that exact same debate that you had over braille you know what is the best system for blind people and actually in in the uk where they did listen to what blind people wanted yes you get agatha christie as well as the bible and a bit of joseph conrad in That's the true, states yes. in in the states i know it was far more these are the good and improving books for blind people and, and and it led to a bit of a backlash in the early years of people going, actually, we'd quite like to read this book. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Yes, exactly. And and I don't think I will get, my life will get damaged if I read a bit of, you know, I don't know, Henry James or... <laughs> yes, absolutely. D do you read Braille yourself? I'm, I'm only on grade one. I'm really, I'm a baby. Um, I'm mm -hmm. learning. Um I did. I don't know. I loved reading in the bath, so I did 
stupidly take um, a whole pile of Braille <laughs> book into my you know, beginner's Braille and <laughs> the steam totally soggyfied it. And um, so I've learned my lesson, um, but I'm learning. Um, but it's it's I'm lucky because I played the piano and so I'm very aware of finger movement and things like that. But um, I'm at more at the moment, I've got really good text-to-speech, speech-to-text software. So, But I hate it because of the voice. It's so, again, the middleman. I don't want the middleman. Um, and I was actually listening to Henry James last night on, on from Audible. And I was thinking how I read it, you know, as a, as a book versus how I was hearing it. And I was thinking I missed my own fantasy. I like the fantasy I had of, you know, the one of the heroes is called Rafe or Ralph. And, and I just... It, the way that it was that it was an American voice reading the story and it totally reinterpreted the story for me. I mean, in a good mm. way, I had a good time, but it was just like, oh, okay. Yeah, I remember that phrase. I remember reading that phrase and it sounds different. What assistive technology did you use to write the book? Um, I, I, I have a beautiful, huge screen. It's, I mean, you cannot write any mean messages on my screen because the entire, my husband, the office, everyone can see my screen. So um, basically 22 font and yellow on black. Um, and then I would get someone to read. I actually hired um, somebody to read to me because I often want to hear the rhythm of the words. And if you do a screen reader, it's not good. It go, it's got this sort of electronic rhythm. And, right. and I, hear, I hear a lot of words in my head. I, how I, I hear sentences. I hear narrative tone. Um, and I asked other people to read it to me sometimes just to see if the tone I imagined I was writing was coming out. Um, and so that was, um, I borrowed the reading skills of some young students, actually. I just got, I said, could you come over and read this for me? Um, and actually, that was quite helpful because I learned, the, you know, and I, I think writing for me is about tone and downbeats and upbeats. And so I would I would actually write something. Um, I think of it like music. I think of it. Um, and when I get stuck when I'm writing, I often go and put a piece of classical music on, like Beethoven, because I can hear the phrasing. And I think, oh, I've got to go from a minor key to a major key. OK, I'll do that in my writing. And that really helps me. And you have a very, very conversational style of writing, which really lent itself to the narration of the audiobook, although it must have been exhausting narrating a whole audiobook. Took two and a half weeks, and then we've just found out I left a whole page out. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got to slip. I've got to go and do another page, and there's a whole page. And so I actually went on Audible. I thought, oh, I'll listen to my own book. And I was thinking, I was like, there's a whole page missing here. So um, uh, yes, it was absolutely. I get something called. I had never heard of this phrase, fat tongue, where you're you cannot speak because you're just talking. I mean, I did it sort of eight hours a day. Mm. of recording and by about four or five in the afternoon I couldn't speak I was like Ugh. so I just I, I we kind of started doing half days because it made it a little less bit exhausting um but I enjoyed it actually I have to say I did enjoy and maybe I like the sound of my own voice but oh. <laughs> <laughs> I found the whole thing quite interesting because it made me think about the rhythm and the the tone again and I was like oh yeah I did get that right that's exactly what I wanted it to do and it is your memoir. We haven't really talked about the structure of the book, but the first half of each chapter is your own personal experience of sight loss at various stages of your life. And the second part of each chapter is why have you met the reactions to your sight loss? What historical or cultural or social reasons are there for that? Well, I think I was really aware that I'm not an academic and um, I didn't want to pretend that I, I am the authority on history. I just wanted to find links that would explain why we're frightened because ultimately what mm. we're really talking about is fear and fascination. There's a sort of weird voyeurism going on as well. And I think that was, I tried to write it as a straight history book um, and I couldn't do it because it, it's too lumpy. It would be so heavy and also... I have to say, you know, the medieval period would just mean a long list of blind nuns. So I, I just was like, <laughs> yes. no, I'm not doing this. But, um, and I, I didn't write a total memoir. It's basically, these are experiences I personally have had. I check with friends who are blind or partially sighted and say, have you heard this? And then I did research on what's available in terms of memoirs and biographies. And it turns out there's 
quite a lot of people have had these experiences. I'm not the only one. So in a way, I felt it was important to, to I think the horrible phrase is lived experience. So I'm, I'm, I've got lived experience. I, yeah, and I think, you know, another horrible expression is it normalises blindness. We have been part of human history since the year dot, and we don't need to be sonically superpowered heroes or incredibly successful Paralympians or stricken victims, blind beggars. We just want to be treated normally rather than as the other. And I guess if I asked you what your big takeaway from this book is, it would be something along those lines, wouldn't it? Absolutely. I mean, I think I wrote it for myself, not you know, as a sort of therapy somehow. But I also think it was the way I was treated. And it turns out that quite a few people, I mean, we found, there's a historian who found a notebook from 1824. Um, and this woman writes, dictates to someone like the pity that people treat her with is far worse than actually not seeing. Mm. And I guess I wanted to over, to humanize it, to to turn the dial. I call it turning the dial. I don't think I can change everyone overnight. And I don't want to also, I am, I am exhausted from, you know, getting angry and getting upset. So maybe an alternative way of thinking about this is how can we change the dial? Just shift it a wee bit, which is, you know what? I'm not super inspirational and I'm not, you know, a burden and oh, poor you. And I'm also, you know, I'm not going to climb Everest. I, I wish I could, but it seems to me a bit chilly and quite difficult. But I just want to get on with my life. And I think there are quite a few people who are doing that now. And I think it's probably in the last 10 years, it's become more acceptable to be that. Um, but it it is wearing on the soul to constantly get in a taxi and just go, can you be fixed? It's wearing to have kids laugh at you as you go down into the tube going, is that a marshmallow at the end of your stick? And you're just mm-hmm. like, yeah, okay, mm-hmm. funny. Um, and I think I think what I was trying to do was normalise and... I think the word normalize is difficult too, but let's say make it mainstream. It's not a boutique subject. We're not weird people in the corner. I mean, I even have this when I travel. I always argue this when I travel. Why do we have to sit in a special area? I'm just like, there's nothing wrong with me. I just can't see. So at the same time, I think you have to be quite careful with this because I do know people, and I was that person at some point who found it very hard to lose my sight and you know, I'm out the other side of, of the Rubicon now, so I'm at peace mm. with it all. But I think it is hard. No one says it's an easy ride. Um, but I don't think the majority of people would would like to be treated with pity. And I don't think the majority of blind people would like to be treated as if they were special goddesses. Although, oh, you know, I, I wouldn't like that. But um, <laughs> I just, I just, I guess I wanted a middle road and... And I wanted to show it through not just my own experience, but through history. It's not just me making this up. And so I was being careful about not claiming to be an academic expert. So I'm totally aware that other people could interpret history differently to me. But this is how I think it, I think this could explain a lot. It might not be the only explanation, but it's an attempt to try and show a, a middle way. Exactly. There doesn't need to be a drama. And actually, you use a a wonderful phrase. A blind character is the perfect vehicle for a melodrama, which is why we have so many melodramatic literary portrayals of blind characters. But you have found a couple of examples of nuanced blind characters in literature. I'm thinking particularly in a novel written by Wilkie Collins, who's far better known for writing The Moonstone. And The Woman in White, yes. Uh, An academic put me onto this, actually. Um, There's a wonderful lady called uh, Professor Hannah Thompson at London University. And she said, oh, have you you read Wilkie Collins? And I went, yes, of course, you know. (laughs) And she's like, no, have you read Poor Miss Finch? I was like, no. And it is, it's a really clever book. It's so unusual. It's about a woman called Miss Finch, and she's blind, and she lives in Ditscombe or somewhere like that in Sussex. And she's her father finds her a, a companion called um, Mrs. Pratalungo, which means an Italian long-winded person. And she's indeed very long-winded. And into the village comes the sexy twins. <laughs> One's bad and one is good. And um, 
Anyway, it's the story of how she falls in love with the Kud twin, but then he gets run, gets hurt, and then he goes blind, and then they find a doctor, and then she brings him back, and then she, the doctor says, I can cure you. And interestingly, she says, no, thank you. I'm really quite happy being blind. And um, my life is fine. Thank you very much. And I, I wish I could say it more eloquently as Wilkie Collins does, but that's the nub of it. And, and that's I'm not doing any spoilers. It's from the beginning. She's quite happy and she always says so. Um, and I find that rather rather touching. So the poor Miss Finch is an ironic poor Miss Finch. She's not so poor at all. She has money. She has companionship. She falls in love with the quite a sexy dude. And she's blind. Whereas in Dickens, you know, who was Wilkie Collins' mate, we've got blind Bertha who can't get married, can't do anything. She's she's the best friend, but she doesn't get a part at all. She just gets to be told how what's going on in the world, but she doesn't get to get married, she doesn't fall in love, etc. From that, it's quite obvious that you are quite a book fan. So now I think it's probably time to ask you about the books of your life. Was there a book that you read as a youngster that made you fall in love with reading or want to become an author? I uh, fell in love with Henry James. I uh, had to do Portrait of a Lady a Day level. And while they all sat around in the classroom reading it and digesting it, I just read ahead because I just loved it so much. I was fascinated to find out about his life and I even ended up going to Rye in Sussex to literally touch the doorknob of his house. Um, I did a master's degree on him and about how he represented cities. And then as I lost my sight, it turns out we had a lot in common because he ended up dictating his novels and the end of his life because he was so tired and his hands hurt. Um, and so he heard, he said that, that writing for him had you know, it was really interesting if you dictate because he had a, a, a lady who came in and he would dictate to her in the morning and then he would read through it in the afternoon. So I think on many levels, he really touched me. Um, I was also at college in the States and so I like this sort of transatlantic aspect of him. He was referred to by Virginia Woolf as um, reading Henry James is like going through a verbal hedge backwards. Some people think that. I think so. Probably his later works are just so exhausting you just want to go to bed but up until about his middle works and particularly the portrait of a lady I just I just it's so beautifully written and it's so poised and contained and and really sad as well and I every time I was thinking about this the other day I was thinking how when you read it I know the plot okay so I should not be <laughs> bursting into tears when somebody dies <laughs> I'm like, oh no, he's dead. And that means that he's taken me. He's got me. You know, he's taken me on the journey. And is there a book that on a rainy day you'd like to curl up with and reread? Um, definitely The Portrait of a Lady. I often do go there. Um, I love reading uh, Scott Fitzgerald. Absolutely love um, The Great Gatsby. I also like Kurt Vonnegut. I often lie down because he's quite short and concise uh, and precise. Um, and he wrote a book called Slaughterhouse Five, and it's just one of the most brilliant short novels you could read. And on a rainy afternoon, you know, you'll be done by tea time. And it's just so um, visceral, and I, I I come away with it with with a very clear image in my head of, of what he's writing about. It's about people surviving after the war, and what happens to them when they go back to America, and then and in blah blah blah. So it's it's um I guess I'm interested in change. I, I'm very interested in novels that look at transformation of someone from this thing to this thing. And finally, is there a book you've read recently that you'd like to share with the listeners? The book I really um would recommend at the moment is called Trust by Herman Diaz. Um and it's a sweeping historical novel. It's about power and greed. It's about um, tobacco traders in Amsterdam. And it, it's sort of, I can see why I like it because it sort of in, it inherits the Scott Fitzgerald looking at power and money and how people live with it and with the choices they make and how you get married and what you think your wife will represent in your rich world. And then 
but it's got different voices. So you think you're reading one book and then you go into the next section and you're reading another book. So you end up reading the woman's point of view, the man's point of view. It's it's brilliant. Well, Selena Mills, thank you for sharing your joy of reading with us and also for taking us deeper into Life Unseen, which is a fascinating compendium of the history of blindness and I think shows that blind people have always been part of society and helps explain why our sighted peers often see us as rather different. Thank you so much for having me. I, I, love, I love talking about books, so I'm in the right place. Thank you. It's time to turn the page on this edition of My Life in Books. Thanks again to my guest, Selena Mills, and to the show's producer, Sean Priest. He and I are going to take a week off over the festive season, but we'll be back on Monday the 8th of January at the usual time of 1pm Eastern with a brand new episode featuring rising star of Canadian literary fiction, Curtis LeBlanc. In the meantime, Sean and I would like to wish you a joyful yuletide full of good cheer, and thank you for listening to the show. If you'd like to drop us a line or leaf through our back catalogue, including episodes 19 and 20 of Series 2, in which I discuss the untold history of the talking book with Professor Matthew Rubery, here's how. Keep in touch with Red by emailing feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail on 844-971-1999 and share your favourite reads. And don't forget, you can listen again to this episode and every episode of this program by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books, or find us in whatever podcast player or smart device you use. Catch you next time. I'm Jenny Bovard. Join me monthly for Low Vision Moments, where I speak with awesome guests about some of the amusing things that happen when you're blind or partially sighted. Watch on YouTube or download Low Vision Moments from your favorite podcast distributor.